0: From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. Many serial killers have called Alaska home And if you apply the broadest definition to the term, then serial killers terrorized settlers here long before profilers coined the term serial killer. A near total lack of law enforcement in Alaska in the early 1900s allowed human predators to prowl the territory and prey on settlers and gold miners. Imagine the nervous miners who had amassed a quantity of gold. How did they sleep? Terror must have gripped them during the long trek from their claim to the nearest town and bank where they could deposit their gold. Ed Krauss was a vile predator who killed with no remorse and then took what he wanted. We will never know how many people Krauss murdered or how much money, gold, fox furs, and other valuables he stole. But what we do know paints Krauss as one of the darkest figures in Alaska's history. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting to you from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. The area in southeastern Alaska, around Juneau, where Kraus operated, provided the perfect location for his crimes to go undetected. Deep, fjord-like bays and passes indent the coastline and surround the numerous islands in the area. If a murderer had access to a boat, he could quickly dispose of a body and cover up a crime. Prosecutors in the early 1900s shied away from charging a suspect with murder when they had no body even to prove the victim was dead. Circumstantial murder cases were too difficult to prove. During that era, miners and business people came and went frequently in southeast Alaska. Just because a person was there one day and gone the next did not mean someone had murdered him. Between 1912 and 1915, several single, prominent businessmen vanished in southeastern Alaska, and the increasingly alarmed citizens pressed law enforcement officials to investigate. When the federal authorities failed to spring into action, the fraternal societies of Juneau raised $1,500 to hire a private detective. This move, more than anything else, spurred the U.S. Marshal and the U.S. Attorney into action. They worried that if mob violence erupted in the Alaska wilderness, their superiors might decide to replace them with law enforcement agents less reticent to respond to the reports of missing men. Kato Yamamoto, a Japanese foreman at the mine near Petersburg, was one of Krauss's first suspected victims. Yamamoto owned property in British Columbia and was educated and prosperous. When he vanished, the mine where he worked owed him $700 in wages. If he meant to leave the area, why wouldn't he first collect his paycheck from the mine? It made no sense for the logical Yamamoto to quit his job without telling anyone or collecting his wages. A while after Yamamoto disappeared, a man who called himself George Hartman, wrote to the bankers in Vancouver, British Columbia, where Yamamoto owned real estate. Hartman told the bankers that he offered Yamamoto a mortgage on the property owned by Yamamoto. Hartman now demanded a foreclosure on the property and wanted the property placed in his name. He said Yamamoto had drowned and would not be able to pay the mortgage. The man, calling himself George Hartman, produced forged documents to back up his claim, and the bankers signed over the property to him. In addition to Yamamoto, several other men disappeared, and soon after they were gone, Kraus ended up with the missing men's possessions and money. Many Juno residents suspected that Kraus and his gang of thugs had murdered the men, but they had no proof because they had no bodies. The missing men were all single and had no close family to raise the alarm and convince the authorities that their loved ones had met with foul play. People believed their friend would not leave without saying goodbye, but they could not prove the man didn't simply pack his bags one day and head south. In the early 1900s, fox farming was a popular industry in Alaska. Fox farms were usually located on islands where the animals could run free but remain captive on the isolated piece of land. Fox farming could be a lucrative business, and blue fox pelts were precious. Europeans paid $175 for one hide and a fox farmer might bring in $20,000 a year, an impressive income in that era. Farmer Calvin Barkdahl carefully guarded his foxes, but on a cold, stormy night in 1915, he knew trouble had arrived on his island, and he had no doubt who the intruders were. Barkdahl knew he had to hold off Kraus and his gang of poachers, or they would take his foxes and kill him. A few weeks earlier, a fellow fox farmer named Callahan visited Barkdahl. Callahan said Ed Krause told him he was building fox pens on an island and intended to fill the pens with the foxes he planned to take from farmers on neighboring islands. Callahan told Barkdahl to keep an eye out for the devil. Callahan disappeared a short while later, and Krause and his gang took over Callahan's fox farm with no law enforcement present, killing a man and taking over his life, and all he owned proved simple. Now, late at night, Barkdoll's foxes awoke him with their barking, and Barkdoll looked out the window and watched Krauss's boat approach a small island. Krause dropped the anchor and began rowing ashore through the choppy ocean. Krause did not choose a good night to raid Barkdoll's farm. Two feet of snow covered the ground, and the thermometer read zero degrees Fahrenheit. A strong southeasterly wind tossed the seas and battered the island. Barkdahl loaded his rifle and waited in the warmth of his house. Barkdahl believed he had the advantage as he sat in his home and watched Krauss approach. When Krauss reached the island, Barkdahl saw him hide behind a woodpile. Several shots rang out a few minutes later from the other side of the island, and Barkdahl watched Kraus peer around the woodpile, his rifle ready. Barkdahl knew that Krauss had ordered one of his gang members to fire the shots, hoping Barkdahl would hurry out of his cabin, his attention focused on the other side of the island. While he was looking the other way, Krause would have no problem picking him off with his rifle. Barkdahl did not rise to the bait. Instead, he remained in his warm, dark cabin, his gaze fixed on the woodpile and Ed Krauss. Barkdahl stoked his fire, giving Krauss and his cohorts a subtle hint that he was watching them and would shoot them if they came near his home. A while later, Krauss and his gang gave up and returned to his boat. Barkdahl was relieved to see them go, but he knew they would soon return and try to steal his valuable pelts. Barkdahl quickly packaged 125 blue fox furs worth nearly $22,000 and caught a ride the following day on a halibut boat heading to Petersburg. He shipped his package through the Wells Fargo Express office and breathed a sigh of relief. A short while later, Barkdahl saw Ed Krause standing on the sidewalk, speaking to a group of men. Barkdahl pushed through the crowd until he faced Krause. Barkdahl reportedly said, "'Krause, you're a cold-blooded, low-down sneak thief and a murdering skunk. There's a yellow streak up and down your back a foot wide. You won't come out in the open and fight in daylight alone.' You have a gang to help you in your dirty work and murdering of innocent, hard-working people at night. I could have killed you half a dozen times last night, but I didn't want to. I want to see the time when the law will catch up with you and you are hanged high by the neck until you are dead. When Barkdahl finished speaking, Krauss stared at him and then turned and walked away. Krauss did not bother Barkdahl, or his boxes again. Captain James O. Plunkett, 55, owned the Loo, a cabin cruiser available for charter in Juneau. On October 24, 1915, patrons at McCall Cigar Store on Front Street in Juneau overheard a man ask Plunkett if he could charter the loo to take him to Sneddish Ham. Plunkett told the man he could not take him because he had already promised to take a passenger to a mysterious location. This passenger did not want to reveal his intended destination until the last minute. A few days later, the loo left Juno, and it did not return. No one saw the boat or its captain again. 4 days later, the US Customs office in Juneau received a letter reporting that the Lou had burned. The letter included the Lou's license and was signed James O Plunkett. On October 29th, 5 days after the last reported sighting of Plunkett and his boat, a man appeared at the Treadwell mine on Douglas Island near Juneau and introduced himself as a deputy marshal he said he had orders to take William Christie, a mine worker, to see the marshal. The man assured the mine foreman that he would bring Christie back to the mine in the afternoon. The foreman released Christie into the man's custody, and no one saw William Christie again. Krauss accomplished his abductions and murders in a cold, calculating manner. Although many in Juno suspected him of violent crimes, They could not prove he had done anything wrong. Krauss made few mistakes and operated under the cloak of darkness and secrecy. His attack on William Christie was unlike any of his other crimes. He abducted Christie in broad daylight, and workers at the mine saw his face. He impersonated a police officer, an indisputable crime that would have given investigators a reason to hold him while they sorted out his more serious offenses. Worst of all, Krause's acquaintances knew he hated William Christie, and they knew he wanted to make Christie disappear. Christie had recently married a young German woman named Cecile, Cecile and Kraus had previously dated, and Kraus grew jealous when Cecile broke off her relationship with him to begin dating Christie. Although he mostly kept his feelings to himself, his hatred of Christie grew when Christie married Cecile. Kraus seethed and plotted revenge against his rival. When Christie did not come home for dinner, Cecile wondered where he was. Soon, Cecile received a note, supposedly from Christie, explaining his absence. Neighbors spotted Krause near the Christie house around the time the message arrived. Krause soon became the prime suspect in the disappearance of William Christie. So Krause jumped on a boat for Ketchikan. From there, he booked passage to Seattle on the passenger ship, the Jefferson. Instead of using his name, he traveled under the assumed name of O-E-Mo. Mo was one of the missing men from Juno whom many believed Krauss had killed. Let me take a short break and introduce you to Tia Bean. I'll let Tia tell you about her weird little podcast. Hi guys, it's Tia from My Weird Little Podcast, your go-to podcast for all things weird. We talk about the paranormal, we talk about true crime, history. It's pretty much a mixed bag of everything you weirdos want to listen to. So please like, subscribe, Find us wherever you listen to podcasts and just be weird. Police waited for the Jefferson to dock in Seattle and watched the disembarking passengers, planning to arrest Krauss when he walked past them. Krauss disguised himself, though, and the officer standing by the gangplank did not recognize him. Krauss walked off the Jefferson and onto the streets of Seattle. Luckily, a former Alaskan, now a salesman in Seattle, saw Krause on a city street and pointed him out to the police. Krause was arrested and incarcerated in Seattle. Krause fought extradition back to Alaska, but he lost the battle and returned to Juneau, where he faced trials for a long list of crimes, including kidnapping and murder. Juries quickly found Krauss guilty of kidnapping Christie and of several frauds involving the property of the missing men. The prosecutor knew, though, that without a body, he would have a difficult task in securing a murder conviction against Kraus. Of all the cases, the Plunkett case seemed to have the best circumstantial evidence. The prosecutor admitted to the jury that the body of James Plunkett was missing he pointed out how easy it was to dispose of a body in the water-rimmed region of southeastern Alaska. He even speculated that Plunkett's final resting spot could be under many fathoms of water near the Taku Glacier. The prosecutor made sure the jury understood about Plunkett's long residency in the Juneau area, and witnesses emphasized that Plunkett had no plans to leave Juneau. Witnesses said Plunkett was a sober man of good character who had no relatives outside to visit. He seemed content in Juno and had not told anyone he planned to leave. Supporting the prosecutor's case was the fact that Krause had some of Plunkett's property in his possession when the police arrested him. And the prosecutor speculated that Krause planned to use Plunkett's documents to acquire and control his assets according to expert testimony the note to the us customs office was typed on krauss's typewriter and the signature at the bottom of the note matched krauss's handwriting in his closing argument the prosecutor called krauss a sneaking wolf and a monster although he provided compelling circumstantial evidence the prosecutor worried that the jury would not find krauss guilty of murder in the absence of a body the prosecutor and the citizens of Juno rejoiced when the jury returned a verdict of murder one. They did not recommend mercy. And in February 1917, a judge sentenced Ed Kraus to hang. The judge set the execution date for May 11, 1917. Accused murderers in Alaska in the early 1900s often saw their death sentences commuted to life in prison. Ed Krauss did not stick around to see if someone would commute his sentence. The federal jail in Juneau held five prison cells. When the jailers opened the cell doors, the prisoners could exit their solitary cells and mingle with other prisoners in a large locked room called the Big Tank. A narrow hallway led from the big tank to a door that opened into the jailer's office. A door in the jailer's office led outside the jail. Guards typically allowed the prisoners to move back and forth from their cells to the big tank during the day. But at 9 p.m., the jailers ordered the prisoners to return to their cells and then lock the cell doors. Krauss somehow obtained a knife and fashioned it into a saw. He then placed a wooden plug at the bottom of the door to his sleeping cell. The plug kept his door from closing securely when the jailers ordered the prisoners back to their cells. At night, Krauss freely left his cell and used his saw to cut through the bars of the big tank. At 9 p.m. on the night of April 12, 1917, the two guards on duty entered the big tank and began the nightly ritual of securing the prisoners in their cells. When the guards had their backs turned, Ed Krause calmly slid through the hole he'd cut in the bars and walked down the narrow hall. The guards had carelessly left open the door leading from the hallway into the jailer's office, so Krause entered the jailer's office and exited the jail. Moments later, guards discovered his absence. Governor J.F.A. Strong met with the guards and law officers, and they immediately dispatched armed parties in every direction. Men in automobiles searched the streets of Juneau, and the Treadwell Mine provided launches that searched from Petersburg to Sitka to the end of Douglas Island. Juneau is an isolated community nestled between the ocean and the mountains. Kraus would know his chances of escape were better by sea than on land, and he had experience with boats. The police concentrated on the islands near Juno. They suspected Kraus would hide somewhere among the islands of the Alexander Archipelago until he found an opportunity to sneak away from the area. Authorities soon learned that Kraus stole a rowboat at Norway Point, just two miles from the city center, and many believed Kraus would go to Admiralty Island, 15 miles from Juneau. Arvid Franson was a Juneau shopkeeper who worked and stayed in Juneau during the week, but returned to his family in Dottie's Cove on Admiralty Island during the weekend. Fransen had a wife and six small children in Dottie's Cove. When he heard about Krause's escape and the speculation that Krause might head to Admiralty Island, Franson quickly returned to Dotty's Cove and his family. Not long after he arrived home, on the afternoon of Sunday, April fifteenth, Franzen and his wife noticed a man in a small boat rowing to shore. They watched as the man pulled the boat up on the beach and began walking toward their house. Franson told his wife to go out and sweep the front porch. He assured her that he would be behind her, hidden in the brush, with his rifle trained on the man. Mrs. Franson trusted her husband and even remained calm enough to greet the stranger as he approached their house. When the man drew close, Franson stepped out of the brush and leveled his rifle. Franson asked the man if he was Krause, and the exhausted man replied, yes. Krauss continued to approach the Franzens, and Arvid Franzen did not hesitate. He shot Krause twice. One bullet pierced Krause's heart, and the other entered his head. Ed Krause died immediately. Franzen sent a message to Juno, telling the authorities that he killed Ed Krause. An inquest the following day exonerated Franzen, and he received the $1,000 reward from the Territory of Alaska for the capture, dead or alive, of Ed Krause. Ed Krause alone knew the full extent of his crimes, and he took that knowledge with him to the grave. Since he mostly preyed on single men with no families, few people missed them when they disappeared. Law enforcement personnel determined that Krause murdered at least nine men and then stole their property. Some historians believe Ed Krauss killed many more men. Some even think he was one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to my patrons for your support. Check out the show notes for more information on how you can support this podcast and unlock extra episodes by joining The Last Frontier Club. You can also search for this podcast on Patreon to learn more about The Last Frontier Club. I'll see you soon for the next episode of Murder and Mystery in The Last Frontier.